Good morning. Hope you guys are good. Um, I'm excited today to start a new series um, called You Came. And uh, basically, as we go into this Christmas season, we're approaching Christmas uh, to celebrate the life of Christ and his birth. Um, we thought about how important it is for us to remember during this time the reasons that Jesus came to earth, the reason he came to us. And so over the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at that um, and looking at uh, the things that Jesus came to do and the things that Jesus came to accomplish. And so today we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 40. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you today, it'll be on the screen. Um, but Isaiah chapter 40. And in Isaiah chapter 40, um, it's, it's an incredible chapter of Scripture. And one of the reasons it's incredible is because the first 39 verse, or chapters of Isaiah um, is basically Isaiah the prophet um, who, who gave the people of Israel God's word. Um, he basically is telling them in chapters 1 through 39 about the captivity that was going to come and that they were going to be taken into captivity because of their sin and their rebellion against God. They would be taken into captivity. But in chapter 40, we see Isaiah skip ahead several decades and he begins to prophesy and, and give them the word of God about what's to come. And he begins to tell them that after this time of captivity, God is going to bring them back home to Jerusalem. And so it's a huge shift in Isaiah's prophecies. It's a huge shift in the life of Israel. And what we're going to see is it has incredible meaning for us today. The topic that I want us to talk about today and that I want you to hear about and be challenged with today is this thought of hope, that Jesus came to give us hope. And I hope, this is, I hope, um, that it challenges you as much as it challenged me this week uh, as I studied this. It, God spoke to my heart in so many ways, challenged me in so many ways, and really um, brought, brought a correction in my life in a lot of ways. And so I'm praying today that God does that for you as well. And so Isaiah chapter 40 we're going to be looking at this. I want to read the first five verses of Isaiah chapter 40. I want to pray, and then we'll get into the message. It says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and thank you for the hope that you give us. God, I pray that today we would be able to firmly fix our eyes on you. God, the one who gives us the great hope that we have. And God, change our perspective from one that is temporary and, and rooted in this life to one that is eternal and rooted in your gospel. Lord, we love you and thank you that you love us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Tonight, Hurricane Irma tearing through the Caribbean. Sir Harvey Weinstein has been fired, detailing numerous sexual harassment allegations. It's going to take a very long time for us to be able to overcome. 
A volley of gunshots in the night, carnage mounting inside, the injured on the ground outside. Indeed, there has been a shooting with uh, multiple victims just outside Mandalay Bay. One of Hollywood's best-known actors, Kevin Spacey, the latest high-profile star caught up in allegations. By one estimate, 3,000 Syrians are leaving Lebanon every day, almost as if all at once they decided there's no going home again. That breaking news, a mass shooting at an American church, a gunman opening fire during a service at the First Baptist Church in Sutherland Springs. Tonight, inside that horror following that deadly truck attack, a mangled school bus brought to a standstill in the middle of the road. The reality for us is that we don't have to look very far to see hopelessness in the world around us. And I was talking with Micah, who does the video work here for the church, and he was talking about how it was a difficult video to make, but it was an easy video to put together because he didn't have to look very far to find images and video of things that are hopeless in the world around us. And we talked about this and we were kind of like, are we going to show this video um, that's so kind of depressing and, and hopeless after we've done baptisms? Is it going to kind of throw everybody off because we just celebrated baptisms and now we show this video of all this destruction and pain and hurt. And, and then I started thinking about it and I was like, what a perfect uh, description, what a perfect example of the difference that we have when we look at the hope we have in Christ versus what we see in the world. And we look at the baptisms and we celebrate life. We celebrate going from death to life. And then we look at this video and we see the hopelessness in the world around us. And the problem for us is that so many of us have our hope rooted in this world that we do feel hopeless. We live like we have no hope. And we live in this worldly way of, of hoping, which is really wishful thinking. It's not really hope at all. We just say, we hope for this or we hope for that. As I was preparing this message, I realized how many times I say, well, I hope this or I hope that. And the thing that we do so many times is we put our hope into things that are of this world. And I was even thinking about this year, me and uh, my family, we decided we would splurge. Susan and I decided we'd splurge a little bit and we'd surprise our kids with a, a ski trip. And normally we've been skiing on the East Coast. This year we decided we'd spend money we really don't have and we'd go out West, right? And so we, we set up a ski trip to go to Utah. And, and I was watching the weather and the other day I woke up and it was 34 degrees in Statesboro. It was 58 degrees in Utah. I was like, oh my gosh. I was looking at where we're going skiing. They have 348 slopes that you can ski on. Right now, they have eight of them open. We're going in like a week and a half. And so I look at that and I'm like, oh my gosh, how depressing is that? How bad is that? Now we're, we've spent this money, we're, we're taking our kids out there, we're going way out there and there's no snow. Uh, so we're taking golf clubs, we're taking hiking boots, we're going to be riding four-wheelers instead of snowmobiles, it looks like, because there's no snow. But, but things like that so often drive our emotions. They so often dictate our hope, these temporary things that in the real scheme of things, what does it matter if there's snow or not? What, is that really a big deal? Is it really something that, that, that should cause our emotions to go up and down like a roller coaster? 
Part of the problem and one of the reasons that our lives feel like it's on an emotional roller coaster is because we put our hope in things that are temporary. We put our hope in things that aren't consistent. We put our hope in things that aren't constant. And in an ever-changing world, the only thing that is consistent is God. The only one who's going to be the same yesterday, today, and forever is Jesus. And we put our hope in so many other things. But I want you to see that our hope, true hope, True hope is a confident expectation that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. True hope's not temporary. True hope is eternal. True hope is not based off of future events that might or might not happen. True hope's not based off of our past. True hope's not based off of our ability. True hope's not even based off of the circumstances that we face because true hope rises above all of those things rises above them all. Isaiah 40, 1 through 5, Isaiah begins to prophesy. He begins to proclaim deliverance for Israel, for God's people. He's telling him he's going to bring them home. And it's a foreshadowing of, of what's going to happen to Israel. But it's also a foreshadowing of the gospel of Christ. We see Isaiah 40, but we see its full fulfillment in the gospel of Jesus. When we read there in verse 2 that he says her sins have been paid for. It's foreshadowing what Jesus would do on the cross for us. Their sins weren't paid for fully until Jesus died on the cross. When we look at verses 3 through 5, those are the verses that the gospel writers, they, 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 they talked about John the Baptist with those verses as John came preaching and preparing people's hearts to receive the word of Jesus and to receive Christ into their hearts. He began to prepare the way. And so we see this foreshadowing taking place when he talks about in here that the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord, make straight ways in the desert. The valley will be raised up, the mountain will be made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. Basically what he's saying is look, Nothing's going to stop your God from bringing you home. Nothing. And what we need to see is that it's a promise to us when we look at Christ that God said, there's nothing that's going to stop me from bringing you back to myself. He's saying, I'm not going to stop at anything, even sending Jesus to die on the cross, even sending Jesus to become a curse for you because of your sin, even sending Jesus to take my wrath so you never have to. He's telling us nothing will stop God from reaching his people. But let me tell you this, our hope has to be rooted in the gospel. It's got to be rooted in the truth of Jesus. It's got to be rooted in his promises. And what we've got to see, listen, there was no doubt in the minds of the Israelites that they were in captivity. There was no doubt that this was good news for them. There was no doubt that they, 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 they might have had trouble believing it and holding on to it. But there was no doubt in their mind that they needed it. Here's the problem for us in America. We don't even realize we're in captivity. We're, sin, we're, we're, we're captives to sin. Many are captives to death. Many have never been saved. Many have never been brought to life in Christ. And yet we're so blinded that we don't even realize we're in captivity. 
And so all our lives we spend in this bondage, not knowing true life, not knowing true hope, not realizing we're in sin, not realizing we're dead spiritually, not realizing we're separated from God, not realizing the purposelessness in our lives. And here's why. Because we're so self-sufficient that we don't readily or eagerly respond to the good news of Jesus. We're so self-sufficient. We're so prosperous. We've got so much. What's the, what's the benefit of the promise of a mansion in heaven when you've already got one here? What's the benefit? And listen, you're like, well, I don't have a mansion. You do compared to the rest of the world. You do. And yet we look at it and we, we don't even see our need for Christ. Our self-sufficiency has blinded our eyes. When we look at the gospel, we see that God has shown his power through, through what he did for us on the cross. We see that God has shown his plan of deliverance for us to bring us to himself and to, 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 to break the chains off of our lives of sin and death and all of these things. The only possible question we could ask about God after we see his power and we see his plan is we could say, what's he going to do in the future? I mean, is he really going to do the, these things that he's promised? And so we go to verses 6 through 8. It says, a voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? And God speaks to Isaiah and says, all people are like grass. And all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are all grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Basically what he's telling Isaiah is that I'm a faithful God. I'm going to do everything that I've promised. Verse 6 tells us that, that our faithfulness will fail. Our beauty, the things about us will fail but he's saying God will never fail. God is going to be faithful to do everything that he's promised. And we got to see that, that God has shown us his power through the resurrection of Christ. God has shown us his plan as he redeems us through Jesus and the cross. And God has demonstrated his faithfulness to us since time began. And so if we know the faithfulness, the power, and the plan, the question then basically becomes, how can we not trust him? How can we not put our hope in him? How do we settle for things that are so temporary, things that in the end don't have the ability to do what we expect them to do? And yet so many times we find that we're hopeless because we don't look at God's plan, his power, and his faithfulness and put our hope and our trust in him. Then Isaiah makes this conclusion in verses 9 through 11. He says, you who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up and do not be afraid, says the, say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power. He's again saying, why don't you trust this God? Believe his word. Believe what he says. Put your hope in him. He says, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. 
He gathers the lambs into his arms and he carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Basically, he's saying, be confident in what God has said. Put your hope in his word. Put your hope in his promises. The problem for us, though, is so many of us don't spend enough time in his word. We don't spend enough time with God to even know what the promises are, much less put our hope and our trust in them. We don't spend enough time knowing them to be able to look and go, this is what God promises. I'm going to rest in this. And yet he says, this is our God. Put your confidence in them. Put your trust in them. He tells us that he comes as a sovereign Lord. In other words, he's coming as a conquering king that nothing can stop him from doing his work. Nothing. He tells us that he's coming with a reward. A reward. He tells us he's coming with a reward. He, he's, in other words, he's coming to give us something. And the thing that he gives us through the gospel is himself. Is himself. But here's the problem for us. That's not enough. But the problem with that is this. If God is not enough now, heaven is going to be a place that you don't enjoy very much. Because it's all about him. And so we've got to look at this and say, is he my reward? We need to ask ourselves, what's the goal of my faith? Is the goal of my faith comfort? with no adversity. Maybe the goal of my faith is status so that I can look good in front of people. Maybe the goal of my faith is a shallow sense of security where God is more of a superstition than he is the God of the universe. So I cross my fingers and hope things go well as I give him my list of things that I want him to do instead of asking him, God, what do you want me to do? And so we need to ask ourselves, what's really the goal of my faith? Is it prosperity that God will give me all kinds of good things? He's the giver of good gifts. He blesses us. But is that really the goal of our faith? Is it the goal of my faith just something that's been inherited? My grandparents were Christians, so I am too. But listen, there's no such thing as inherited faith. It's going to be your faith. You can't just grow up in church and think I'm a Christian. Have you ever made Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life? Have you ever rested the weight of your life on him? Have you ever put your hope in him truly? Where are you in regards to that? And then Isaiah goes on and he mentions here uh, as a shepherd who provides and protects and gives direction. And then he looks at this. He says there's no God that can, there's no there's nothing that can stop me. He says, I'm going to reward you with myself. He says, I'm going to be your shepherd. And then he goes through some things that the Israelites would have had in mind that could have kept God from doing what he promised. And so he begins to talk about these things. And what I noticed as I was reading this is that many of the things that they thought were going to stop God are oftentimes things we put our hope in. Because many times we begin to see them as bigger than God. And so our hope begins to go to them rather than God. So listen to verses 12 through 14 as he lays out the first one. You'll notice this pattern that as he's begin to introduce one of these, he talks about the awesomeness of God to show how much bigger God is than the thing. He says, who has measured the waters 
in the hollow of his hand or with the breath of his hand marked off the heavens who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor as you look at that first part he talks about the mountains he talks about these these things he talks about measuring out all this stuff and he says whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding the first thing I believe God deals with the Israelites on that he needs to deal with us on is that sometimes we think that there's someone or something or even ourselves that are wiser than God. And what he's saying is there is none that is wiser. There's none that have, have ever instructed me on what I should do. God's never laid awake at night wondering what should I do next. He's known. And, and we sometimes, so many times, begin to trust in our own wisdom. We begin to trust in the wisdom of the world when we have need direction in life, when we need to know what steps to take. How often do we just do what makes sense rather than consulting God, rather than taking it to God? How many of our decisions are made with even having God in mind? Typically, it's what we can understand. It's what makes sense to the world around us. But you need to understand this. Following God is not always going to make sense. We should be doing things that don't make sense to the world. Our way of life should be different. It should look different. There should be ways that we raise our kids, things that we do in our marriage that the world looks at and thinks that's a little strange because God's ways are not the ways of this world. But so many times we lean on our own understanding. We more oftentimes trust in our education than we trust in God. We oftentimes trust in our job skills to provide for us more than we trust in God. We look at all these things that we've got intellectually and we think that somehow they trump what God can do in our lives. But there's no one who's going to come up with a better plan or outsmart God. We've got to come to a place where we realize that the wisdom of the world, the wisdom that we have, it's going to fail. But God's word is going to stand forever. Verses 15 and 16, he goes to the next one. He says, surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They're regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires. He's saying there's no sacrifices that could be made that are enough for me other than the sacrifice of Christ, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. The second thing that's so tempting to put our hope in and that the Israelites were going to struggle with is basically God saying here that there's no nation that's greater than me. He's saying there's no nation that's going to stop me from bringing you home. And yet for us, listen, we live in the greatest country, contrary to what many people would say today, the greatest country that is in the world. There is no doubt about it. But there's two errors that we make in regards to the nation that we live in. 
So many times we watch the news, we hear things that are going on, and we freak out. And here's number one, is because we see the nation as our savior many times. We see the nation as our savior. Somehow this nation is going to change everything, and we're going to be okay, and it's going to take care of me, and it's going to look after me. But do we really think that the politicians are the ones who's going to save our lives? Do we really think that it mattered a whole lot who got in the presidency, Hillary or Donald? Do we really think either one was going to save us? Do we really think revival is going to come out of Washington? Do we really think that the, the nation is going to be able to be our savior? It's what God's saying. No nation is going to save you. No nation is going to be able to do for you what I can do. The second... The second thing that we often do is we look at the nation, we look at the government, we look at the world around us, we look at our culture, and we somehow think that that's going to stop God from moving. And God's saying, no nation can stop what I want to do. Again, there's no politician, there's no president, there's no government, there's no, there's no anyone who can stop the work of God. And we, we look at that, and sometimes we get so frustrated. I know I get frustrated when I watch the news and I see the direction of the country, but we've got to realize that the answer to everything that we see going on here is not another law. A law can restrain people's behavior, but only Jesus can change someone's heart. I want you to, to look at 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 7. This is a popular verse, but I want to look at it real quick. It says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. He says, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. And so many times we look at it as if we can do it. We look at it as someone else can do it. And God's saying, I'm the one who heals I'm the one who forgives I'm the one who makes right but he tells us that's his responsibility and then he tells us ours he said if my people will humble themselves that means that we've got to quit thinking this is about us it means that we've got to quit putting ourselves in the place of God it means that we humble ourselves before him if we who are called by his name would begin to pray it means cry out to God it means to ask God to move in the lives of the people around us move in my heart give me a burden for the things that burden you. He says if we would come to a place where we would seek his face, in other words, seek who he is rather than just what he can give, he's saying if you would desire me, if you would come after me, if you would pursue me, if you would take up your cross and follow me, then you would see me move. He says, if you would turn from your wicked ways, in other ways, if you would repent of your sin, if we would turn from sin, having a change of mind, that this is what I want, this is what I need, this is what's going to satisfy, and turn to God in repentance so that he can move in our hearts, then he'll begin to move in the hearts of other people. But listen, we don't want to do that. It's too hard. And half-hearted Christianity is a burden. But that's what we see mostly in the United States. You'll never enjoy serving. You'll never enjoy giving. You'll never enjoy any of the things that God asks us to do. You'll never enjoy a relationship with God if you're just half-heartedly walking through this, which is not even Christianity at all. 
The reality of it is he's telling us, do these things. But here's where we're at in our culture. Here's where we're at in America. We're so self-sufficient. We're so prosperous. We're so, so able to think we are in control that the, the good news has become bad news. Then when Jesus says, if you'll take up your cross and follow me, I'll give you life. It's a burden. It's not good news. You mean I've got to give up something? You mean I can't have all this, this stuff and just claim it as my own? What do you mean? And we wonder why we're hopeless. Because we're trying to find our life. But Jesus says if we'll lose our life for his sake, then we'll find it. We're still holding on. We love this life more than we love God. It's why we haven't yet recognized that we're strangers here. This is not our home. The things that happen tomorrow do not determine your destiny. But we live as though it does. And I'm just going to be honest. The reason that this sounds so depressing is because you're realizing the emptiness of what you put your trust in. He even goes on in the next few verses. And he says this, he says, with whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker cast it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. He's saying, look, you so quickly worship created things rather than the creator. He's saying, you've got all these idols, but don't you recognize the foolishness of what you're worshiping? He's saying it wasn't created, or it was created. He's saying, I'm uncreated. He's saying, you're, you're worshiping something that was created by someone's hands. And he tells us that all of those things, they're going to fail but we put our hope, we put our trust in so many material things and they begin to take our worship. We need to understand that anything we begin to worship with our lives, anything that comes before God is an idol in our life and it can't save us. It can't give us life. We begin to worship it. Worship controls our thoughts. What are we thinking? It controls our actions. What are we doing? It controls our emotions. Why, what causes my emotions to swing up and down? How many of you were excited that Georgia won last night? I was. I was jumping around my living room. I didn't sit down through the whole second half. When Swift broke that 64-yard touchdown run, I was running through the living room. I think I ran faster than he did. I was fired up, man. It was awesome. SEC champions. I was like, the kingdom has come. <laughs> it was awesome. Been waiting for that for a long time. But there was one part that God really pricked my heart. It really convicted me. After the game was over and they interviewed um, the coach, what's his name? Um, Kirby Smart. Yeah, I had, a, had a, a brief moment there. I couldn't remember. But they interviewed him and he was thanking people and he said, I want to thank the fans. And they all went, Rah! And he said, you've traveled so far with us. You've covered the whole nation. You've gone all over the place following us. And you're a big part of why we're here. And I'm like, oh, because he's fooling them to think they're actually part of the team. So they can go to work tomorrow and they can say, we won. They didn't win. They didn't do anything. They're not even on the team. But I thought about it and I was like, they're going nuts over Kirby Smart. 
They're going nuts over. And they traveled the nation to, to go follow Georgia football. And it's awesome and I would do it too. But is our heart like that for God? I mean, would we, will we travel the world to go tell someone about Jesus? Will we, will we go to the nations as the Bible tells us? No, because our hope is in our comfort here. Our hope is in this life. Our hope is in preserving ourselves, not bringing salvation to someone else. It's why we can't get people to serve here. It's why we can put presents on a tree and people will buy them like crazy because it's a tangible representation of your heart to help someone. But the thing you've got to realize is that there's a greater purpose behind that. It's not to give someone a remote control car or a bicycle. It's to give them the hope of Jesus. And so many times we miss the tangibleness of someone dying and going to hell. We, we don't see the tangible representation that it is when we serve. We don't see the tangible representation when we pray over a baby, when we rock a child, when we tell them the gospel. We don't see all of that. And so we're not as, as encouraged by it. But I'm telling you, what happens when someone raises their hand or stands up in here for salvation is so much greater than anything else that could ever happen in their lives. And we've got to see that the purpose that we serve here is for that. If that offends you, good, because we need to change our thinking. What are we doing in America? If we really believe what we say we believe, then let's get off our butt and do something with it. And quit hoping in these futile things. He goes on and he says, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and his people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps him away like chaff. I'm running out of time, all right? But the last one he says is, are you looking to someone that you think's more powerful than I am? He says, as I bring princes to nothing, those powerful people in the world, they don't compare to me. Are you trusting in someone else to do for you what only I can do? And he wants us to see this because that's one of the things that we do is we put our trust in other people. We put our hope in other people. Are we really gonna put our hope in something so temporary that God just told us it withers and fades, that it falls apart, that it can't sustain? Are we really gonna put our hope in that? Are we putting our hope in our spouse? We're looking for them to satisfy us and give us security that only God can provide. Are we looking to our boyfriend or our girlfriend? They're consuming all our thoughts, all our actions. Or are we looking to God? Are we looking to our, 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 our boss to be our provider? Anxiously laying awake at night because of what he might say tomorrow. Let me tell you, your God is greater who are we putting our trust in? What are we trusting? Are we trusting in ourselves? Are we trusting in us, what we can do, our ability, what we can take care of, what we can control? It's hopeless. It's temporary. It's not going to last. Newsflash. You're not in control. 
We're not. We're not. We have some measure of an ability to make decisions. But there's so many things that are out of our control. The only hope we can truly have is in the God who's sovereign. The God who's sovereign. He goes on down and he says, to whom will you compare me in verse 25? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? Who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name? Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Basically, what he's saying is the answer to all the questions that Isaiah just proposed is that there's no one like our God. And so God is now saying, why won't you trust me? Why don't you put your hope in me instead of in this life, instead of what you can provide, instead of what someone else can do, instead of the country saving you, instead of all of these things that we put our hope and our trust in, instead of my own wisdom, why don't you put your hope in God? He goes on in verse 29. He says, he gives strength, or he goes 27. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. Here's, if you want to take four quick notes, here's one. Here's one. One reason we should have hope is because of God's concern in comparison to our indifference. God's concern in comparison to our indifference. He's saying God's not forgotten you. In fact, the Bible tells us God can't forget us. He won't. He's faithful. It says he's faithful even when we're not. In the next verse, 28, says, do, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary in his understanding. No one can fathom. He's telling us in this that God's size is another reason for hope. When we look at God's size in comparison to our struggles, the struggles we have, the affliction we have, the Bible says they're light and momentary in comparison to what we're going to attain. Are we seeing God's size in comparison to our struggles? He goes on in verse 29. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Another reason for hope is God's strength in comparison to our weaknesses. He's stronger. When we're weak, he's strong. But we live outside of our limitations, not trusting God to be the things that we can't be. But we can draw strength from him. He says, even the strongest will fail, but God will never fail. And the last one, if you look at the whole scope of Isaiah 40, it says that God's faithfulness is a reason for hope. Especially his faithfulness in comparison to our unfaithfulness. And the reality of it is, guys, we've all, me, you, we've all been unfaithful to God in so many ways. And yet he remains faithful to bring us to himself. He remains faithful to do for us what only he can do. And he's saying now, put your hope in me. Why wouldn't you put your hope in me? Not this world. We got to go. But I want to tell you this, hope, listen, hope is the fruit of faith. Hope is the fruit of faith. But you got to understand that faith is not just belief in God. 
faith is when we rest the entire weight of our life on him and his promises and the gospel. It's not when we just mentally assent to the fact that there is a God. It's when we take the full weight of our life, everything we are, everything we have, everything we will ever be, and we put it firmly on him so that if he were to fail, which he can't, our life would crumble down. And here's the thing, guys. If we want to build faith, we need to ask God for the power of the Holy Spirit. Scripture tells us he'll give him to us. We need to look at God's past faithfulness and see how faithful that he's been to us and throughout history and throughout Scripture. We need to go to God's word. Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of, word of God. We need, this is huge. We need to shift perspectives from something temporary to eternal. Otherwise, life doesn't make sense. Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us an obvious truth that God has set eternity in the hearts of men. This temporary world doesn't make sense. If this is all there is, then life is nothing but a cruel joke. But the reality is there is more. We don't just turn into to, to potting soil. When we die, there is eternity. Another thing we need to do is look to the resurrection. Listen, if you study and you really begin to dig into it, you'll realize it's a historical fact, not a philosophy or a religion. We need to ask for wisdom. James 1.5 tells us if we'll ask, he'll give it. But then we can't be double-minded. we got to be all in. And so there's some next steps for you right there. Seeking the power of the Holy Spirit, looking at God's past faithfulness, shifting our perspective from temporary to eternal, looking to the resurrection of Jesus and asking for wisdom from God. And listen, I know I probably said some things that got on some people's toes. And if I did, then good. Because God got on mine all week. He challenged me with this. He challenged me with this a long time before he challenged you with it. And I want you to walk in the hope of eternity. I want you to walk in the hope of Christ. But first, you've got to put your full weight on the promises of God. And guess what? Tomorrow it's going to be tempting to take them back. But you put them again. Your full weight, the weight of your life, of everything on the promises of God. You take up your cross and you follow Jesus. And listen, I want to give you the opportunity to say today's the day that I do that. Today's the day that I put the full weight of my life on Christ. Put the full weight of my life on God and the hope that he has. And if you've never done that, listen, I'll be honest again. I'm just on an honesty roll today. There's people in here who all of your life has been a half-hearted commitment to God. There's people in here right now who you've had one foot in and one foot out all of your life. And I can tell you this, until both feet are firmly planted on the promises and the gospel of God, you will not have the hope or the peace that God wants you to have. And so if you're here and you have never said, I'm, I'm all in, I'm, I'm, I'm putting my life in the hands of Christ as the Lord and Savior, 
And today God's speaking to your heart and saying, you need to do that. Then what I want you to do is I want you to raise your hand. I want you to raise your hand. I want you to say, that's me today. I need a relationship with God. I've never had that. I've been halfway in and halfway out. He's never really called the shots in my life. There's never been a transformation in my life. Listen, faith that doesn't bring life transformation isn't saving faith. Has God transformed your heart? Now I'm going to pray. We're going to go. But listen, when I'm praying, maybe you need to come ask for the power of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you need to reflect on God's promises. Maybe you need to change your perspective. Whatever it is, I'm going to tell you to come down here and you get on your face and you cry out to God. Maybe it's for our nation that God would bring healing, that he would move. Come get on your face and you cry out to God. What is it that, that, that you need to do as your next step in, in obedience to Christ? For many of us, many of us, because this was me this week, is shifting our perspective to something and someone eternal versus temporary. So I'm going to pray. You come and you pray. I want this for you. I want this shift to take place in your heart. And so I'm going to pray and you move. God, I thank you for your love and your grace and your heart for us. I thank you for the power of your spirit. I thank you, God, that you do give us the spirit to give us, God, direction, to give us power, that we don't have to live with a form of godliness and yet deny the power that you want us to have. God, you don't give us that. You want us to walk in the fullness of who you are. I pray, God, that we would see your past faithfulness. I pray, God, that we would be in your word and that our faith would be growing. I pray, God, that you would shift our perspective from temporary to eternal. I pray, God, that we would see the resurrection and the good news that death is not the end. I pray, God, that we would seek your wisdom because I know that if we seek it with all our heart, that you'll give it to us. And so, God, fill us with your spirit. Fill us with your wisdom. Give us eyes to see things the way you see them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. I do love you. Have a good week.